certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Bradley Edwards is a self-confessed rapist. In 1995, the accused murderer grabbed a teenage girl as she walked home, tied her up, gagged her and raped her in a cemetery. Today, the court heard explicit and graphic details of her harrowing account. Thanks for joining us for Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Also in the studio, we have a criminal defence lawyer, Damien Cripps. Thanks for having me along. And calling in from Supreme Court, the West Australian newspaper's Tim Clark. Hi, Tim. Hi, guys. Um, I think maybe before we start, we should probably just let listeners know that we will be discussing some of these graphic details in this podcast. Tim, you've sat through this evidence today. Can Mm. you just tell us what was day 11 like for you being in the courtroom? Yeah, it was um, it was another heavy day, to be honest, Matt. Um, as I've mentioned before, we haven't been uh, getting sort of advanced, really advanced notice of what, what met the next witness is. So um, we all turned up this morning, I think, sort of maybe expecting a bit more personal evidence around Jane, given that that's what we were doing late last week. But um, Prosecutor Carmel Barbagallo stood up and said that she was going to read in to the, to the, to the record um, multiple statements from um, this this person who we know is the victim of the the Karakata rape and um, and so that and that's what happened and um, it took Miss Barbara Gallo probably close to an hour to read all the four statements in um, and as you would expect they were graphic they were disturbing um, and um, they um, affected um probably everyone that heard them, I would suggest. Mm. And so these were statements. Was the victim present in court? She was at the start of the reading in. Um, She listened to the first one, which was the very first statement she gave basically on the day or on the day after the attack happened. And at that stage, Um, she would have been 17 at that stage, right? Yes, yes, she was a teenager. Um, so she she was in court um, with a lot of her um, supporters with her, um, and then after that first one was finished, um, she basically quietly got up and and left mm. left court, um, and uh, yeah, and then the reading ins continued um, as I say for about an hour, um, and then there was just a couple of little more um, statements sort of after that, and then the. Um, and then the morning break, and then um, yeah, and then she was back in court um, uh, as she has been, um, you know, for a lot of the um, a lot of the trial so far. So yes, um, she was there, um, and um, and obviously was so was Mr. Edwards. So this obviously isn't the first time then she has faced him if she's been in court. No, absolutely today. not. I right. mean, she was she she she's been a sort of quite a regular attendee of, of most of the court hearings way back, um, all dating back probably one of the second or third hearings after Mr. Edwards' arrest. Um, uh, She was in court and she's been, as I say, quite a regular attendee, um, Mm -hmm. along with the police and and others that have been supporting her. Um, And um, and as we said, she was there on the day that Mr. Edwards pleaded to these um, these crimes um, just just before the trial was due to start. And and she's, she's been here for a lot of the trial too. 
So can you um, maybe just uh, talk us through her account of what happened in her statements? Yeah, so um, this was a night um, in February um, 1995, so just about 10 or 11 months before Sarah went missing, uh, Sarah Spears went missing. She had been out for a, for a night with, with friends into, the, into Northbridge, which is the entertainment district of, of Perth, for those who don't live here, and, and then on to Club Bayview, which we've heard a lot about, which mm-hmm. is one of the main nightclubs in the Claremont area. Um, she, it was a normal sort of freewheeling teenagers night out, you know, drinks and dancing and, and laughter. And, and and then she um, found at the end of the night, she, she was a bit short on cash. Um, she only had 50 cents in her pocket. So yeah. rather than try and make her way back to where she was living in Cotslow, which is sort of not too far away, but far away enough that it would have been a pretty decent walk, she decided to make her way up to a friend's place up at, at Goodry Street, um, which is literally 15-minute walk from Club Bayview, probably probably less if, you're, if you've got a good pace on. So that's what she decided to do. This was about 2.30 in the morning. Yeah. Um, and had she been drinking? Yeah, she had, but not to excess. Um, you know, she was obviously you know, enjoying her night out, but yep. didn't, didn't enjoy it um, too much. Um, and then off she, she made her way down to her friend's house and she she was about halfway down um to, the, to that walk when she was um she just told the police she was grabbed from behind in the dark on a footpath uh, in a place called row park which is just a little sort of little park um just some a little bit little way out of the claremont area and she, had she heard anything prior to being grabbed did she say in her testimony or no, in her nothing, statements nothing, nothing. This, is, this is quite one of the, the most sort of you know chilling aspects of it she was completely oblivious to any peril or danger uh, awaiting her until she she felt the force of these two hands on her on her upper arms from behind um and then within seconds she was um taken to the floor pinned um, and then uh, basically incapacitated by having her wrists and hands tied behind her back with a, with what we now know was a was a knotted um, sort of plastic cord that Mr Edwards had brought with him. Um, and then she was also gagged, had a hood put over her mouth, um, then had her feet um, tied in a similar way. And then Mr. Edwards basically picked her up. She described it, uh, picked her up like a baby. So sort of one arm and beneath her knees, another arm beneath her back, basically carried her completely incapacitated um, to his vehicle, which was just just 10 paces or so away. And um, had she screamed out at any point at this stage? Or? Yeah, well, that's what was interesting. She, she said in her statement she froze, basically, when this, when this attack started. Um, and then she described, uh, say, having this cloth or, 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 or piece of material shoved quite hard into her and deep into her mouth yeah. and then had the bag put over her head. So um, at that point, she was, uh, you know, frozen in fear mm-hmm. and also basically uh, unable to, to, to make any sound that might have been um, audible any distance away because, um, because of the way that, that, she'd been, um, that she'd been incapacitated. And so, after what has happened after that, he's he's put her into he's the put van, her in a car. car. Um, yeah, he's put her in a car. She she described it as feeling like a panel van because it was, she was she didn't feel constricted inside the car, even though she couldn't see. Um, and then he's driven around for about half an hour. She said, um, and she said that she was getting a little bit knocked around in the back of the the, the, the vehicle because. She, she could feel them turning corners, right? 
um, and then the and then the car slowed and then it stopped. She she described thinking about twenty five minutes, half an hour, mm-hmm. but it turned out that the actual destination was literally only a, would have been a two minute drive away um, in a in a cemetery um, just around the corner. It's called Karakata Cemetery. It's, it's basically the main yeah. cemetery for the Perth metropolitan area. So you can imagine how big it would be. Um, yeah, it's very big. It's it's very old. I think it's about 120 years old mm, and yeah. it's very leafy and green and bushy, isn't it? And it's yeah. probably, what, only 2K from Claremont, I think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and being so big and so um, expansive and, and also obviously shady trees and whatever, um, there was a particular part of the cemetery that Mr. Edwards drove up to, which was which was in a, in a basically in a far corner of the, of the actual cemetery, which was particularly um, with particularly isolated. Um, uh, where he f- obviously felt that he he could um, he could do what he wanted to do without being disturbed. And so, um, obviously, the car stops, and mm. what happens next? Yeah, so she he then um, carries her out of the car um, in a similar fashion. Um, and, and then basically sort of drops her or, um, you know, places her on the ground and, and begins to drag her mm-hmm. um, a short way um, into, into you know, as I say, the sort of area of the, of the cemetery um, and then basically begins his sexual assault on her, which was um, uh, what we describe as degrading. Um, it was persistent. It was, it was, you know, quite as, as far as these things go, quite long lasting. It was minutes rather than um, seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in the course of that, he untied her legs, and then at some point also took the the hood off. Um, but she described in one of her statements as she was still sort of you know frozen in fear, couldn't believe it was happening to her. Um, and yeah, basically then tried to she she said she was too scared to open her eyes let alone try and make a noise Um, and then at at some point also basically started play dead or at least pretend to be unconscious um in in the hope that it it would it would just end and did he leave at that point did i mean how long was she laying there you know pretending to play dead or to be unconscious so after about 10 minutes, um, he got up and walked away um, and then not a few paces and then came back, picked um, the lady up um, and then sort of basically dumped her in, in a nearby bush, mm. walked away again. And at this point, she thought well, it must be over by now, started to get up. And then he came back a third time, picked her up and placed her in an, a, a, a nearby sort of more dense bush basically just threw her in there her hands are still tied at this point she's um you know her clothes have been ripped off her um um, and obviously i mean you can imagine the pain and also emotional and physical distress and at that point he has left um and so she's waited a, a, a decent amount of time and then basically got up and, and, and tried to, to make her escape, which he has. Um, there was a nearby gate, which she's gone through, gone on to the, to, to uh, it's quite a busy road um, next to the cemetery. And at that point, she's then tried to make her way towards basically civilization houses or 
um, as it turned out, um, a, a medical complex where she was able to get um, able to get some help. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, you cannot actually comprehend the terror that um, she would have been feeling at that time, and and not knowing whether this person was coming back for her, I think, must have mm. just been excruciating. Yeah, you can imagine, you know, a seventeen-year-old girl had enjoyed an, a night out with friends as thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of yeah. teenagers do every weekend all over the world, and uh, um, but this one um, turned into a complete nightmare, um, which I'm sure is as as her and her family have lived with for a very long time Mm. and I guess she went for a very long time thinking um, she would never get justice over this attack yeah so that's I mean that's the next stage I suppose is um, after the after she'd been tended to at the hospital obviously police became involved um, and very very involved very quickly Um, we heard from a a detective today that actually um, was with her on the on the morning after so this this has happened sort of in going into dawn, um, and so by by sort of seven o'clock in the morning, police were alerted. Her family's been alerted. Mm. Um, Who did she they, first get contact with? Tim? Yeah, so like how she, did she first raise the alarm? She got to the she got to a, um, a a nearby hospice, tried to get some help there. Um, didn't get much joy. Went to Hollywood Hospital, which we've already heard a lot about. Managed to um, alert a nurse there, who had let her in. Um, she obviously quickly discovered that this was serious yeah. taken into the hospital and, and and was was cared for there basically given some clothes to wear or some hospital garments to wear um and then um the as i say the police arrived um very quickly ascertained it was a very serious offense mm-hmm. forensic officers were called and then this particular detective actually took the lady in her, their car um to basically drive around um, the claremont area to try and get a bearings of where it, where it had occurred um, and where she'd walked and then also took her to the park where she'd been abducted from. I mean, and in the meantime, forensic officers have, have swooped in and very quickly found the scene and also found the clothing, um, certain the, the items of clothing, um, lower half of her body, which she was wearing, which had been removed during during the attack, and they and they found those, um, and also the, obviously the cord that was which her hands were tied with, so that was still on her. Um, what what so, was the cord exactly? Well, it was it was described as pla- as as sort of plastic coated cord, so one might. Um, think of a clothesline, possibly, mm. but the way that the, the police officer described it at the time, which was interesting, was a, a, a telecom or Telstra or telecommunication cord, which might be used in that um, in, in, in that industry. And, and we obviously all know the, the, the possible the possible relevance and importance of that now. Mm. And um, at what point were her family contacted? Yeah, so it was actually her dad that she managed to get hold of via a, a, an old school reverse charge call from a uh, telephone box. Yeah. So probably no one, no one under twenty five knows what that means. <laughs> listening, but um, she she dialed the number for reverse charges, managed to get through to her dad, um, and uh, basically made him acutely aware of what had happened to her. And he rushed over to the Hollywood Hospital and basically arrived almost at the same time as the police did. Yeah, just um, that phone call that just would be unimaginable as a parent. Indeed, the one well, you'd it, never want to get. And um, so, did her father have a statement in court today, or was he? Yes, he, he did yes. briefly, um, just basically describing the call that came through, right. and um, that she was 
um, when she did get through, she was upset, hysterical, distressed, and she basically described her as telling him that she'd been tied up by a man and taken to a cemetery, um, and he hadn't heard the actual graphic details of what had happened until he basically got to the hospital, but he was obviously well aware of something very serious happening. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, I I guess police have to do their job, but just when you were telling us that then, it just seemed extraordinary that this girl has gone through this horrific experience, but pretty much straight away they had her bundled in the car driving around Claremont, you know, going from place to place and location Mm. to location, trying to pinpoint, I guess, what, where she'd been snatched from and where she'd been left and things like that. Yeah, not sure that would happen now. Not sure that's particularly seen as gold standard sort of police practice. But I guess back in the day, I mean, you know, sort of um, strike while the iron's hot. And so they really wanted to get a a, a good idea. And, you know, in in some respects, I suppose that was the right thing to do because they were able to seize the clothes um, almost immediately, which, uh, um, which are are obviously vital in in the 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 case the prosecution for the rape but um you know as we've you know touched on and probably will again later on in this podcast that particularly the shorts that were left behind Mm -hmm. um by mr edwards after the attack um they're 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 of absolute sort of vital um uh, evidence uh, not only in this case but also going forward to 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 linking this case with um with the Claremont murders so um tim just in relation to this person's evidence altogether mm-hmm. um, a, a, it might seem obvious to a lot of people but some people will be wondering why this evidence um is relevant or how how mm-hmm. it would come in, in into a trial um was there any discussion about that pre this these statements being read in did the court address that yeah, well, they they have done Damien in previous pre-trial hearings. So this was um, just to put this in context. Mr. Edwards was originally charged with this crime, the Huntingdale crime, and two two of the murders way back in December 2016. And basically, right up until about three weeks before the trial, he had maintained his innocence on all of those. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, he um, you know two three weeks before the trial, he pleaded guilty to Huntingdale, which we heard about last week and he pleaded guilty to the rape. So the prosecution obviously no longer has to prove that he's done those. We know he's done those because he said he did. But in all the pretrial sort of um, prevarication, um, uh, the prosecutor argued for the propensity evidence, which we discussed last week. Basically, if he is able to do this to a young girl in Claremont, 17, take her off the street, abduct her, have his way with her, you know, that surely as according to the prosecution is a pre could be a precursor to other crimes i.e three young women going missing off the street from claremont and all this happened within you know just over a two-year period so and the judge had ruled that admissible pre-trial he'd said yes i agree that could be prevalent for me then mr edwards obviously pleads guilty but the prosecution say, well, it's still, it, it, it's even more relevant now because we now we know it's Mr. Edwards that has done mm-hmm. this. And so we say that this evidence is um, even more prevalent, hence why it's able to come in today. I mean, essentially, Damien, I guess, is this the prosecution arguing that, um, you know, the accused has graduated 
from being a rapist to a killer? Well, Nat, obviously I'm in a position where I don't know the actual answer to that. No. But what, what I could say um, to put potentially assisting what people might be thinking about that is that um, the, 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 the judges had a, um, considered what's been put before him and made a decision about it and it leads back to what we might have discussed the other day and, and it never sits well with people but essentially what I raised to Tim and you Nat is that in this incident here and I'm certainly not discounting what um, happened to this person mm -hmm. but she was let go and that's something yes. that's um, something I wanted to ask Tim about like did, did the Telstra that, living witnesses right, were let go did it um, did it resonate in the court the way that this evidence was presented that um, it was a different incident to mm. the ones that um, are accused in that this person um, was let go? Yeah, well, today, no, actually, I've got to say, mm -hmm. because we hadn't heard the full details. I mean, we, we, we knew what the, you know, the basics of what had happened, but, and, and to hear it sort of, as it was relayed sort of three times in, in it, it got more and more detailed if you like because as the police were taking these statements over a course of a number of months after um you know that this, this detail the details became more detailed mr jovich has pointed towards that uh, or, the, or you know that that possibility or you know um you know that anomaly i suppose you could say um in in previous hearings um but he um he didn't really go anywhere with the particular um evidence of of the victim today it was just read in and obviously you can't cross-examine someone who's no, yeah. you know evidence being read in but what mr jovich did do later on and we'll get to later on was he began his assault on a legal assault you know on a on the on the um, the continuity of the evidence particularly forensic evidence that was collected by the police on this day and we know that that is going to be a running theme throughout all of this because the forensic links we are the other major link between this attack and the murders because the prosecutors are going to say there's a DNA link between this the Karakata victim and Kira and they're going to say there are fibre links between the Karakata victim and both Jane and Kira and so if Mr Jovic wants to knock down the, the, or, or try and weaken the, the chain if you like the, the, the prosecution say establishes that these must have been or were done by the one man and that's what he's going to have to work on and that's what he started to work on this afternoon. So Tim, you had said earlier that um, the police officer who was the forensic expert and I think was she a specialist in photography? Yes, so she was basically the crime scene photographer on the night, yes, or in the morning, yes. So she has come along very quickly, presumably, mm -hmm. um, and has taken all these various photographs you've said of her shorts and all these sorts of things. And did did Paul Jovic um, raise any issues with any of those photographs or any of the exhibits? Yeah, so um, absolutely he did. This was, so these, these, these shorts were found at the mm -hmm. scene. Forensics were called, as they would be, obviously. Um, and the, uh, some of the records showed <clears throat> that... Um, the 
the exhibits as they now are were photographed what they call in situ which is basically where they were found mm-hmm. to show where they are and then they were obviously photographed again when they were take got back to um whichever police station it was there was also photos of the crime scene taken which quite clearly showed drag marks between some of the gravestones where um the victim had said that he dropped me and then dragged me basically backwards under my arms um so my feet were dragging on the ground and my shoes popped off mm-hmm. um and so there we go that, that's the, that's the record of the crime scene uh, and we were shown those photos in court um, of, the, the, of the crime scene taken, and we were shown the photos of the of the clothing that was taken, and we were shown photos of the knotted cord that were also taken. Was it very clear? Were these photos quite clear to see? Well, the ones taken at the police station were. The ones of the fo- of the clothes in situ weren't because we couldn't see them, and the police can't find them. So that's the I mean, so that's the major issue with those oh. is that there's no actual record of those photographs. Um, being uh, existing anymore, the ones of the exhibits as they were found at the cemetery at the time. And that is where Mr. Jovic pointed much, much of his questioning to the officer this afternoon, basically trying to get her to explain, well, I know you say you would have done this and you say you did do this, but there's no where record of the, where are the photographs. So she remained adamant, though, that she had taken these photographs in situ. She did. She did, she did, but where they are now, um, uh, well, we don't, we just don't know. Who knows? So, Tim, just um, we were talking before about the um, the the witness that gave uh, evidence the other day and, and utilised the opportunity to actually mm. give the evidence themselves. Yeah, Th- this was a bit different today. Um, did did was it feeling different in the court? Yeah, I think it. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it. Well. When you, I mean, you know, Damien, you'd have done these trials. It's always, it's always, it's, it's never easy, easy listening at that type of evidence, whether it's read in via a statement or whether the person who's experienced it is telling, is telling the court in in person. Um, and yeah, it, it's 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 difficult. So, it's, well, so it's, Tim, it's can, harrowing. I, can, can I just ask this in in relation to the evidence that was read in today? Mm-hmm. Was it your feeling that it was more effective because it was delivered without emotion? Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I mean, I, I've I've always been told by by you know lawyers and people who work in the judicial system that first person is always best in, in terms of you know you want to hear it from the person. But it, it, there's just circumstances where that that's that's not uh, that it just doesn't need to and can be more distressing. And obviously, I, I would suggest that this is probably one of those things. Um, the way Miss Barbara Gallo. Uh, um, presented it was very matter of fact but i've got to say the details were you know shocking enough that even being read by a neutral person quite quickly into court it still it still had a a, 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 you know a big emotional um, impact and at least one person who wasn't the victim who was was in the uh, in the public gallery did actually leave the court quite upset at, at hearing what had happened. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was a different feeling, but no less emotional. I would say. Did they come back, Tim? I'm just. But they curious. did. Yeah, they yes. did after after a short while. Yeah. And what about Edward's reaction in court today? Very um, stoic as usual. Yes. He was taking quite a lot of notes as the witness statements well the the, you know, the statements were being read out um he wasn't didn't look towards the back back of the court um, much he basically kept his eyes 
forward, sort of focused on Miss Barbara Gallo as she was reading it all out. Um, so yeah, um, sort of business as usual for him really. But he was he, he, he did seem to be paying sort of very close attention to to the um, to the statements as they as they were being relayed. But he's not looking around to the back. I always find no. it interesting as to where they where he would be looking. No, no, he wasn't. Um, there was a reference today, I understand, about one of the security guards who was doing patrols around the Hollywood um, Village Hospice yeah. that night. Yeah, there were actually two uh, security guards that gave evidence today. One who was employed by Hollywood Hospital to do his rounds there, and yeah. one that was employed by Karakata Cemetery to do rounds there. Um, and you might think that the Karakata Cemetery security guard would have been more important, but as it turned out, it was the Hollywood Hospital um, guy and um, his penchant for uh, for Smoko or Ten <laughs> during a shift that actually proved to be important because he was at uh, a certain entrance at the hospital having a smoke at about the right time, about 20 quarter to five that morning, mm-hmm. when he saw full beam headlights coming towards him at Monash Avenue, which was straight into his, his eye line. He couldn't see the, um, the people in the van because of the bright lights. But when it turned left, mm-hmm. um, he saw the Telstra logo on the uh, side of it, and, it was, and he was quite sure that it was a Telstra or Telecom logo um, on that brand new, as he described it, white sort of panel van, high ace van, um, n- new model as it would be would have been in in 1995, um, which was just you know a, a little bit of another little bit of circumstantial evidence, which you know um, tends to point to sort of Telstra white Telstra vehicles being around um, these um, the the Claremont area at particular nights of interest. Tim, just uh, you just said then that um, the security guard had given evidence that he couldn't see the people in the van. Could you just mm. clarify, if you can, you might not be able to, mm. do, did, did, did that person indicate that it was people or couldn't um, actually say whether it was a person or people? No, he couldn't see any occupants actually, Dean, because as you say, he, he said he, he, he almost, the, the lights were so bright in his face as it came up the hill that he, could, he actually had to yeah. turn away until it turned left. And that, that's the only, and then the only sort of distinguishing feature was was the, uh, well, he noticed the uh, the shiny paint, and he and he noticed the the logo. So, um, yeah, it would have been um, would have been interesting if he had been able to see inside what he would have been able to see. Again, this um, link to Telstra, mm. um, even right now while we're talking about this, we've had a listener email us in and say, you know, their frustration that um, during the course of this that police didn't talk publicly about these several reports of Telstra cars picking up people and these attacks and what have you so you know it's still a, a source of frustration for everyone it's a diffi- it would be a difficult decision for the police to have made back then about what, mm-hmm. what they were going to reveal and mm. um, in it's easy with hindsight to look back and say how much of a benefit it might have been or it might not have been but it would have been a very difficult decision to make back then I would have thought that yeah I absolutely concur with that I mean and a bit like well I mean there's certain details that the police uh, uh, want the public to know because that's that's what they think will bring in the m- most information and there's definitely certainly certain details that they don't want anyone to know outside of that room because you know to release them it would be to give over a huge investigative advantage that they mm-hmm. have um so i mean it, i'm sure we'll hear much more about this in, in, in the weeks and months to come um because i mean i i would assume it'll be 
basically something that will have to be addressed, um, you know, during the course of evidence about, you know, how much did they know um, about, um, you know, Telstra, potential Telstra and Telcom um, um, uh, involvement. But but Nat and Tim, it it is good that people can email in yes. and say those things at this position. And that's the, that's what this kind of forum is all about. It's, yeah. it's, it's conversation. And um, the whole state have a view about what's happening. It's a great opportunity for people to actually email in and, and voice their views. Yeah, and it's and it's good that people take an interest in the legal system and, and how it works. Um, we do have a question for you, actually, Damien. John Chappell, who's um, been listening in from Texas, He is curious as to, in the unlikely event that the judge could not preside to the end of the trial, is there a backstop for that? Um, There's no easy answer, I would say, John, and thanks for the question. in, In a situation like this, I would suggest that the avenue, if that happened, would be one that the the courts would deal with as it happened. Um, It would be, it would especially if it got right towards the end of the trial and, and, and um, something mm. um, caused the judge to not be available to um, finish it. it, it's likely that it would be a mistrial and need to oh. start again. So, that, 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 But that being said, I can't see inside no. the court system completely, and I'm not sure, um, but, but if you could think about that the position would be that one person had sat there for that whole time and considered all those things and developed ideas about what mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the argument had been along the way, it would be very difficult for them, a person to come in, any person yes, to come in. Yes, you just can't just and, call in a sub, can you? <laughs> no, I think it would cause, uh, it would be a terrible position to be in, but it's a great question because these are some of the issues. It does happen, and Tim will tell you um, there's many a trial that along the way have been um, tipped over, if I could put it that way, by yeah. virtue of um, unforeseen things unforeseen happening. Unforeseen circumstances, yeah. yes, but I mean, that would be, I mean, that would be just a dreadful a position. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fair question because yeah, we are we are all only human, even yeah. Judge Stephen Hall. <laughs> Well, fingers crossed um, we don't have to contend with that in this trial. Um, Thanks for your time today, Tim. I know it was probably very difficult for everyone in court today and also very difficult to sort of go over all these details again. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Damien, for coming in. No problems, Nat. Thanks for having me on board as usual. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with Day 12 and you can contact us on claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. We appreciate all your feedback, so keep those coming through. And just before you go, we go. If you or someone you know has been affected by the details in this podcast, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Sexual Assault Resource Centre, which is 1800 199 888. OK, thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow night with Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of The Seven Network and The West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.